Hi, and welcome to Beyond Bold by The Bold Age. Our aim is to encourage and support people approaching retirement and in later years to live a longer, healthier, more active and bolder life. We also want to create a dynamic voice for social change, recognising that boldies can and want to add value to society. In our Beyond Bold podcasts, we will reflect on a host of topical stories, relevant news, and also interview some great people who are making a real difference to our Boldy community. In our Bold Interviews podcast, we will be reflecting on a host of topical stories with people who are at the centre of making a difference. What they've seen and experienced, what their reflections are, and what are some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. I think people are going to be surprised at some of the things the nurses are going through that they haven't heard about in the mainstream media and how those working in the NHS are actually feeling. I didn't realise just what they went through and now the depth of anger they feel about the way they've been treated. And you can hear that in Dave's voice as he tells us exactly what they went through in the first wave as they were protesting and what they're preparing for now. I'm just glad we get to bring this to people's attention. Welcome to our first episode of Beyond Bold and our first Bold interview, which we're sure you will enjoy listening to as much as we've enjoyed preparing. I'm Andrew, one of the founders of The Bold Age. And I'm Nigel, another founder. And in this episode, we speak with Dave Carr, a critical care nurse at St. Thomas and Guy's Hospital in London, who, along with his entire team, was on the front line in dealing with COVID-19. So Dave, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I thought you were talking about the bald age there for, for a while, which, which, you know, I fit that bill absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I'm getting there fast. And Andrew, you've got the booth on, though. Well, I've kept the lockdown anti-haircut and anti-shaving thing going. Um, so I'm, I'm claiming it's still full lockdown and we can't get to a hairdresser and can't shave. I wish I wish I could hide her hair to actually for that to be the case. But uh, thank you again for um, for finding the time for us. Um, I guess uh, what we wanted to start with is maybe have a look at now that we are entering into our second wave and uh, lockdown two point zero. Just wanted to understand what it was like for you guys in the first wave and the first lockdown, and um, what did the day in the life of a nurse look like? Um, I, I, really interesting question. I'll tell you, for a lot of us in, in, in nursing, it's kind of, we're only now really reflecting on what we did during the first wave because there's talk about the second wave. Um, and I think it's having a real mixed response amongst my colleagues. I, I've already spoken to some people that have just burst into tears at home at the prospect of having to go through it again. And some other colleagues are talking, it's just saying they've got to sit it out. But um, it was odd because we saw it coming like a, a slow train. I mean, we've got a lot of um, really brainy people working in the hospital, far brainy than me. Um, so we've got a lot of women and men that are, you know, they're, they're scientists, they're in contact with what was going on in Italy and China, they could see what was happening way before, you know, uh, the peer, you know, the peer reviewed journals or the articles or the news reports come out. Um, we've got an Italian consultant works in our main ITU and um, he was speaking on the WhatsApp groups with the Italian doctors in obviously in Italian so he could see exactly what was coming and it was horrifying because what we were, were, were hearing on the shop floor was this is really bad, this is really big, this is really serious. Um, but what we could see at work initially was... Um, we were carrying on as normal. You know, we were still doing the operations and we're thinking, why are we doing these operations? You know, the planning didn't happen as quickly as we were thinking. We were almost, you know, thinking, when are we going to stop? When are we going to stop? When is there going to be a lockdown? And of course, then we heard the, you know, infamous, um, the pubs are, you know, like uh, open, but don't go to them. The uh, the restaurants are uh, you're there to be eaten in, but don't eat in them. Uh, you know the 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 you know the the craziness of, of the beginnings of the um, of the madness from the government. Cheltenham went ahead. Um, the football was going on, and we were in disbelief that this was happening. And then we kind of you know all of a sudden there was a decision at the end um, the hospital, and I think the clinicians weighed heavily on the operational managers and said, look this is what's going to happen. You have to stop normal functioning. We have to turn this place into, I mean, effectively, Tommy's was turned into a, a you know, an intensive care unit. 
um, you know, we went from 50 beds, well, more or less 50 level three beds. They're the kind of beds where you can use ventilators to, to um, the capacity for 300, which meant converting a lot of areas. And it was chaos. The beginning was chaos. We didn't know what PPE arrangements there were. The, the Public Health England downgraded COVID um, from a highly a highly infectious, um, uh, contagious disease, which meant that there was these surgical masks on the wall, even though we had full PPE on ITUs. Um, we didn't know whether they, we, we had enough, the poor communication from management. But there was a point where we felt that the people that needed to be in charge of the outbreak took over. So it felt like the lunatics, you know, not the lunatics, I mean, that's a bit hard there, you know, but, but it felt like the operational managers that had their eyes focused on running the NHS as normal had their hands gently or not so gently lifted off of the levers of power and they were told it's going to be like this. And from that point, um, it, 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 it shifted into it was it was almost we were preparing for something really serious and you had that feeling um and then as the wave hit us i mean we got our um itu eventually ready say on a you know i can't remember the exact day but say it was a monday night we were ready to go monday morning we had about Tuesday morning, we we were half full, and in three days, our unit was completely full. We'd gone from zero COVID cases on our unit up to 19, which was our capacity. So it was full on. And then it was full on from, from then until I think about the 19th of April was when it was like a storm breaking. You know, uh, you know, it, we could start to see the light. We, the patients were either dying and not being replaced by patients again or being discharged. So we start to see the amount of beds go down. But from that period at the beginning, uh, middle of March up until, you know, the middle of April, end of April, it was, it was, it was absolutely full on. And am I right in saying that uh, St. Thomas's really was the sort of central hospital at the very beginning anyway, that was actually considered where quite a lot of the cases in London would actually be taken, certainly central London? Tommy's is the pandemic lead in London. So it was our job to be at the sharp end of the sharp end, if you like. So, um, and of course, a place like Tommy's has the, you know, the 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 ability to both physically and um, in terms of the capacity of the staff that are in there, uh, not just in terms of the numbers of staff, but the quality of the staff. I mean, we've got the, you know, we've got the brains from, you know, the, all of the best brains are working in, in, in Tommy's in terms of dealing with something like this. So one of the pluses, of, if you can call it a plus, is I, I felt privileged to work with, with some of these people, men, men and women that were clearly in charge of what was going on inside our hospital and knew what they were doing. And they were using the latest information from China and Italy to make sure that we gave our patients the, the, best, um, the best chances. And it wasn't just the clinicians who were fantastic. It was our medical physics guys, the guys who, you know, who calculated along with the, you know, like the clinicians, how much oxygen we would need. Hmm. Because you're probably aware, or you may not be, but some some hospitals ran out of oxygen. Um, Stevenage, I remember hearing it, seeing it on the news. Yeah, there was there was a few, and 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 we had to bring patients to Tommy's. Uh, from those hospitals because effectively their oxygen supplies went down. But we knew what our oxygen um, capacity was. We we laid in additional requirements as well. So I felt clinic, clinically all the way through, I felt like our guys were, well, you know, there was a lot of learning on the job, absolutely. But I, I always felt confident that the, the, the real senior people had a clear idea of what they were doing with the pandemic, you know. And that, I think that shows how well the NHS did its job. You know, we were presented with a lot of sick people, um, you know, backing up, backing up in, in our A&Es. And, and they got absolutely quality care. And certainly at Tommy's, they got excellent care. And how is that knowledge shared between hospitals? Like, is there a coordination in the NHS that you've done all this learning at St. Thomas or Tommy's and now you're going to share that up with uh, Queen Elizabeth up in Glasgow and Stevenage Hospital. How does that work? That's a really good question. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of ways to share information. So there was the casual sharing of information. People know people. It, it, ITU is a small world. 
Um, so there was that casual conversations that were being had. And also I was involved. I was sharing my the knowledge that we picked up with senior nurses at places like the Gwen um, up, in, up in Wales. How did you handle this? What did you do here? You know, so that was that cross-fertilisation. Um, of course, there are anaesthetic societies, intensive care societies where everyone's linked in. The information was being shared through them. There were WhatsApp groups, other platforms that were set up specifically. There were video conferences that were going on where the you know our intensivists and our lead lead lead, lead um, doctors were involved in sharing that information out across the country and across and across Europe. Um, and there were a lot of people that were producing a lot of information that our clinicians could use, like in, 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 in um, you know, in, in uh, stuff that they could download onto their phones, um, you know, contacts that they could use. So I felt that the clinicians adapted very quickly to sharing the information, whether or not it was entirely always picked up. There is always egos in an environment like intensive care. But I think generally the task was what's the best, you know, what's what can we do that's best practice and let's adopt that rapidly. Mm. Um, so I saw some really good work um, fr from the NHS. Was that grassroots sharing of information or was that coordinated from the Department of Health? I know it was grassroots. Whether or not there was coordination from the Department of Health, uh, I'm not so I'm not so sure. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about being involved in in it as a nurse was that we were heads down, you know, uh, uh, busy all day long. Um, so there was coordination from the Department of Health. I mean, the Department of Health told us what we needed to provide in terms of beds. So I think, you know, there are good people at the Department of Health. There are people that know what they do, you know, in, in the bureaucracy everywhere. I think what we clearly saw was a lack of strategic leadership from, from government and the politicians, which was which was shameful, really. Um, so I know that there was a lot of um, cooperation. Across, you know, we needed to know what we were de de delivering in London. But for instance, I, I would like to, to know what the discussions were about the, the need for the Nightingale hospitals, because what we know is that they were fantastic institutions with fantastic staff in them. They weren't ever used to full capacity, thank God. But they did strip the NHS of a lot of leadership and a lot of clinical staff that may have been better used in 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 in, in their own hospitals. So that's a moot point. Uh, for instance, in Tommy's, we did lose a certain amount of nurses and doctors down to to the um, Nightingale, including some senior um, nurse leadership that might have come in handy, um, considering the amount of vacancies there already are in critical care at Tommy's. But anyway, you know. Um, so just to summarise your point, there was definitely the grassroots um, cooperation amongst uh, amongst clinical staff, and I think there was already a lot of uh, communication systems in place that the the critical care staff use anyway. Uh, you know, uh, um, whether or not we saw real strategic planning from the Department of Health is probably slightly above my pay grade, um, but. Um, you know, the fact that the NHS weathered this storm well was was testimony to, to, to the fact that there was cooperation and we did um, you know, turn our attention to, to, to dealing with COVID. The, the real choker is that we had to switch the NHS off to handle COVID because there was no spare capacity in, in the NHS to actually pick, pick something like this up. It was either do COVID or, um, you know, like carry on as normal and get overwhelmed, like I think other health services did. And we, we did COVID, we did it well, but the repercussions of that are really worrying now. I mean, you know, we are seeing patients that haven't made it. Um, I know from what I've been told um, from medical staff that have seen the, the statistics that the, um, and it's being called collateral damage from COVID could be into the, 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 um, into these same figures as people that have actually died of diagnosed uh, diagnosed um, COVID-19. So, you know, we could be looking at 100,000 deaths in this country, you know, both from COVID-19 and from the consequences of the NHS shutting down in that period. So that's, you know, that's the real choker there. And, I, I, you know, personally, personally, I've seen stuff that I would rather not have seen after COVID. And I know as a direct consequence of the of the service not being available um, during that period. I know you touched on it earlier, Dave. Um, and I know, you know, certainly we at the Bold Age are interested and we because we, we feature uh, mental well-being uh, quite a lot. But it'd be quite interesting to get your take on, on you know, as you went through that sort of first wave and 
obviously the lessons learned as we come into the second wave, you know, what, what the impact it all had on both the physical and mental well-being of nurses? Um, that's, a re- that's a brilliant question because um, when it hit, there was a lot of fear um, because we there weren't enough ITU nurses to, to run the ITUs to the size that they wanted. So there was a lot of stuff that went out that, that, that added to this fear. So there was directives saying there would be one ITU nurse per six patients and we would be supervising what they called, you know, euphemistically surge nurses or upskill nurses. And of course, that worried us because of the, the 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 consequences to us as individual ITU nurses. But it also worried the people that were going to be these surge nurses. What would they be doing? How would it work? It never got that bad in in, in Tommy's. We never had that one to to sit. Well, there were a couple of weeks where we the, the 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 staff were being brought online where we had shockingly bad staffing levels. But generally, after after the the, the surge nurses were brought online, we were okay. We survived on adrenaline a lot for the first period of COVID. I mean, it was, you know, it was frightening, but also exciting. You know, this was something, you know, totally different and on reflection historic. Um, And we had a job to do, you know, so my my brain was entirely occupied by a, a thousand and one different tasks I had to to carry out, and also leadership. You know, I'm I'm not a young nurse. Um, I'm 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 57. So, and I've been in critical care for a long time. So the expectations on me and other senior nurses, um, and my colleagues have been absolutely brilliant. I know some of them have been nominated for um, awards inside the hospital for where they behaved during COVID, including a certain. Uh, a noisy um, staff member of mine in the background. Um, it was, you know, we had something to do. It was really, really busy work, incredibly heavy, heavy work. And we, you know, we had to support the junior. We saw nurses in tears. We saw nurses that couldn't cope. We saw nurses go off sick. But generally, we battled through it because, you know, you get to work and it was so full on. You really didn't have a chance to think about how you felt. I'll give you an example of of how bad it was and how bad I felt was there was a, a shift I did where um, we had 14 patients on on the unit and a 15th arrived and unfortunately had a cardiac arrest. Um, and I'd been on the day shift, so we just about had enough nurses to, to handle the day shift. But the night shift, 14 ITU patients, um, this equals usually, if it was usual working, it would be one nurse per patient. So we would have a minimum of 14 nurses, maybe more. Um, But we had three ITU nurses and three surge nurses that had never set foot inside the intensive care unit. And I, um, I remember... Um, having to hand over to 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 these nurses at the the end of my shift, and saying, look, you know, all of the basic stuff that you normally do, all of the the care that you normally, you just got to keep these people alive overnight. And I was supported by one of the consultant um, consultant intensivists who was saying, look, you know, that's all you've got to do tonight, just keep them there. And then I spent the next three hours running around the hospital, finding warm bodies, if you like, to come in and just be the runners for for, the, for these nurses. And I felt absolutely. I felt like I should stay there all night. I felt sick that I was leaving my unit, you know, in such a, you know, in such a, uh, you know, a, 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 a tough shape. But we got theatre nurses in, we got nurses from the wards, we got healthcare assistants in, you know, we got doctors to come in and 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 be nurses for the night. And they got through the shift and I saw them the next morning and it was, you know, it was tough, but we did it. Um, and everyone was as, as exactly as they should be. That was one of the worst things for me, just looking at this staffing ratio and thinking, what is happening here, you know? And I, I saw the looks on those nurses' faces. There were tears running down the cheeks of, of, of my colleagues I was handing over to. And they, there they were, you know, and it wasn't, look, you're really upset. Go home. Don't worry. You know, we'll have a chat about it. It was, you haven't got a choice. You're going in there. And, you know, because who else? And, you know, I remember saying, you know, the nation are looking at us at the moment. You know, they are expecting us to deliver for their loved ones. They're expecting us to, to rise to this. You've got to rise to it. And so I felt awful. But at the same time, I'm, I'm saying you have to go to work. You know, there's no options here. And, and I'm off to work. They went. And it was that was one of the toughest things for me. But um, you might want to touch on this later, but I think it was after the the peak had gone and after we started, you know, the... the, the um, 
the, the cases started to subside and eventually our unit closed, one of the earliest units to close because we were a satellite ITU. Um, and um, that's when we started to see the psychological damage. I mean, I'm 57. I've got a lot of experience. I've seen a lot of things. I am a highly experienced ITU nurse, but if you're 23, 24 years old, you've never set foot in an ITU before, and all of a sudden you're faced with death, cardiac arrest, sick patients. You know, what, what must have that been like for, for those staff? Yeah. The one thing I'm actually interested in as well, because, I mean, you know, full on, you know, and it does feel and sound from what you're saying very much like a battlefield. But you, how, how much support do, do you think um, the system actually gives you afterwards? I mean, because, you know, this is, you know, it must be very close to, if not the same as PTSD. Well, we have, we've got a lot of nurses diagnosed with PTSD, and I'm sure other staff members as well, because it wasn't just nurses doing this. We had all the professional stuff. We had radiographers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists in, you know, that we had teams that would have been stepped down, like orthopedic doctors coming in and doing physical work, like rolling patients in, in the bed, turning patients. So, but PTSD is definitely something that's occurred. People have seen stuff that they should, you know, they, they normally wouldn't see in a, a lifetime of nursing. Um, and um, and the support we got was interesting because I think that initially it was the support wasn't there because we were so busy trying to just have those bodies available at the um, the bedsides because of the wave of, of COVID came crashing on us. I mean, we filled up our unit in three days. Now, it's a 20-bedded ITU. If you think about the size of our other intensive care units, we've got two, three 15-bedded intensive care units at St. Thomas's. Each of them were doubled in capacity. So each one became a 30-bedded intensive care unit. And then we started expanding into the other areas as well that weren't normally intensive. So you, you can just see the scale of what we were facing meant that um, in order to lay on that level of support, but and we couldn't go to the pub. You know, nurses like to go for a you know a pint after work and de- de- you know you couldn't do that. You had to go and home. Fancy breakfast in the morning. <laughs> yeah, you've seen it a few times. Yeah. So um, so there was none of that normal support. So the trust, you know, off what we did get, which was important at the time, was the public were brilliant to us, absolutely brilliant to us. I mean, God, you know, we've eaten so well. I mean, I, I know that you know, Andrew, about the um, the, the Otto's uh, stories. I mean, I was eating, what was it, you know, duck breast and celeriac sandwiches and lobster. You know, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, we had a delivery, I, I remember one day from, I think it was from Spitterfields or wherever the big fruit and veg market is, and it was roll pallets with these massive boxes. And it was fresh vegetables, fresh f- fruit, cucumbers, leeks, potatoes, bread, milk. And there was one of these boxes for each ITU nurse and surge nurse, yeah. and they'd been delivered. So it was phenomenal support. And of course, you know, I, I remember coming out of work and all the buildings had been turned blue, uh, you know, and you're just thinking, God, you know, what's going on? Oh, this is for us. And also the clap, you know, it, it's been, uh, I think there's issues with it now, but at the time, I, I, again, I remember walking out of St. Thomas's Hospital, I think it was one of the few times I actually left more or less on duty and someone, oh, on time, someone had painted a massive chalk um nhs heroes we thank you thank you so much you know and it was like massive great big letters and i walked out and actually tingles up the back of your spine and then you can hear this ripple of of clapping and I, that helped i think you know that helped mm-hmm. of course we we suffered this experience collectively as well so you can turn to any nurse that was in critical care now and when they say oh god it was tough during covid I know exactly what they're saying because we all went through that same experience. And I spoke to I spoke to a family member that remembers speaking to their, um, I think, granddad about the Second World War. And it was nothing on the scale of the Second World War that we dealt with. But their granddad told them that after the war, if they ever, you know, were in a pub with other other blokes, and it was most blokes that have been through this, and something about the war came up, they didn't need to discuss it. They knew what they'd been through. They knew the horrors they'd seen. So there was that level of, 
you know, feeling amongst us that, you know, when someone said, yeah, it was a tough shift, we knew exactly what they meant. Uh, and then, of course, we were offered psychologists, um, you know, where we could, we would give staff a break if they were just finding it overwhelming. So there were people that we were saying, just don't come in tomorrow, you know, back off. Um, and of course, I think the trust did try. We had wellbeing centres set up. Um, there were whole groups of staff that were designed with massage table and not um, massage chairs, no hands-on stuff. We had a supermarket set up in the hospital if we couldn't shop properly. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about wellbeing during the COVID period. I mean, to be fair to us on ITU, I didn't see much of it because I was too busy. <laughs> too busy. Um, but it was there. And I think our, one of the things that we've noticed now is that after the ordeal, there is, you know, it's almost, there's been a big change in the psychology of, of, of workers in, in the hospital because it was absolute bedlam before COVID. We were short-staffed, under-resourced, lacking of beds, pushed to the limit, really, really tired out all the time. Um, then you do COVID and then, you know, you're told, we've been told you've got to get back up to 90% normal working by the middle of October. And you just think, honestly, you just think, how the flip are we going to do this? Hmm. How can we do this? Because we are so tired. Um, and so what you see now is, I think, the late effects, you know, the, the people don't want to go through it again with a second wave. People are utterly exhausted. Um, you know, there's a real feeling of how can we go back to normal when normal was so bad you know in in my unit where i'm working now and, and jesse will bear me out on this you know us normal for us was running out of staff by about three o'clock and then scrabbling around the hospital begging people for begging the matrons can you find staff can you find staff telling other people you can't come out of theaters we're not ready for you delaying their journeys home you know delaying everything um, and getting really stressed. And that was normal before COVID. And afterwards, you said, oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, I don't want to go through COVID again. I don't want to go back to normal. And I think that's a feeling across the whole workforce is something's got to give. And I know you're going to touch on this later, but I think when the pay thing came through, when we were told we weren't part of the 900, you know, the 900,000 public sector workers, thank you, uh, pay rise from the government, that was it, really. It was like, what the fuck else can you do to us in this period? You know, we, we've we've we're knackered before. We did COVID for the country. You know, we did our best. Uh, we we've got to turn the NHS back on now, and you kick us in the teeth uh, with, with with this this lack of pay offer. And I think so. We're you know we're really done in at the moment. I mean, I feel asking to do it again. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's the real fear in the background. You're looking at this and thinking, please, not again, because I don't think, you know, going through the motions, I, I can go through the motions, but rising myself and our colleagues to that level of intensity again, well, I hope we don't have to go through it again because, you know, perhaps if we've been treated with respect by the government after the, the the fact if they'd if they'd said right well done you know we're gonna we're gonna pay you for what you've done there's no other way for us to we've we've collapsed that doesn't pay your bills we understand that you need some sort of like you know physical recognition of what you've done here's a decent pay rise for you but without that i think it's undermined us it's collapsed morale inside the health service and it's, it's now turning into anger against against the government you've seen the process that have been yeah. recently it's you know, it's 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 really made us bitter about 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 the government, I think, and the handling of the NHS during COVID and, and afterwards. So, Dave, can you just explain to me and for the people that are listening, because um, I, I I don't quite understand. So, there was a three-year pay deal that's been agreed previously. Um, there's been talks in the papers about that being an equivalent of 4% or 3%. You, I'm sure you know the number better than I. But why is that not enough? What is, what, what's the deal with that? I think, I think the pay deal pre-COVID was, I mean, again, it was a, another pay deal that was met with just, oh, God, it's another rubbish pay deal. I mean, my pay has taken 
probably, I think it's between 17 and 20% cut in real terms in the last 10 years. We've just had below inflation pay rises or pay rises that just don't match the cost of living, certainly in places like, you know, big cities and places like London. So we get this three-year deal. And the three-year deal really doesn't give us much of a pay rise at all. On my band, on the top of my band, it's about a £1,000 difference between the top of my band now and the end of the i wish i had the, i had the figures earlier i could have given them to you so it goes from something like 30 um 32700 pounds top of my band now to the end of the 3 year pay deal 33,700 pounds. So you can see over a three-year period, it's a thousand pound increase on my salary, which really isn't much at all. It doesn't account so much at all. But I think it was the the COVID. If they'd not offered 900,000 public sector workers a pay deal, I think we would have just thought no one else is getting a pay deal. They've, you know, a lot of them have been in the same boat as us. Let's crack on. But it was specifically carving us out after what we'd done. I mean, mm. uh, you know, with no work, I mean, with no disrespect to anyone else that was involved in COVID, they didn't have to go and do what we did, which was bloody hard. But also, it was looking after your loved ones. That's what we did. You know, we didn't just, you know, like people died, people lived. We, no relatives were allowed into the wards. We were the last connection between the family and the passing of generations often. I mean, I, I've made the phone calls, um, the video phone calls we made as well, where I would be saying to the family, I am now going to turn off the ventilator and the, and the infusions keeping your loved one alive. Um, where would you like me to point the camera? Um, uh, and, 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 you know, often they'd say, can we see, you know, face or can you hold these hands so we can see someone's with them? And you can hear people crying in the background, um, you know, as their loved ones pass away and they can't see them. And, you know, they can't see them at any point, funerals, etc. So I did that. We did that during COVID. And then we don't get a pay rise, but 900,000 other public sector workers get rewarded for what they did during COVID, which was important. Now, it made us feel, look, you know, what do we have to do to, you know, we've got the recognition of the country. We've even got the recognition of the prime minister coming out and praising two nurses and saying how wonderful the NHS was. But what do we have to do to actually get the recognition we need to actually do our job properly? It, we did that shorthanded COVID. You know, one of the reasons there were such issues with nursing is because in England alone, we've got 42,000 nurse vacancies or had at the point of COVID. So we did it shorthanded. And one of the reasons we can't keep people in the NHS is because the pay is rubbish, especially if you're living in London. I mean, it's all right for me. I'm a single man and I've, I've been living in Hackney all my, all my days. I've got my own place. But if you wanted to bring up a family... Now, if you're young and buying for the first time or you're writing, renting on the private market, forget it. You can't set up a family in a place like London. It's almost impossible. So, you know... Yeah, we're just looking at some of the statistics before, actually, and the average salary in London, London, all, all salaries, according to ONS, is 39,000. So hearing you mention the 32 is uh, below average in London. And I'm a band six... And I'm at the top of my 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 band. So I, you know, like, like Jesse, I we manage intensive care units. We go on and we take responsibility for the entire intensive care units. And that's all of the patients in it and all of the staff in it. You know, that's as senior as you get in critical care, apart from if you go into the management structure. And that's the top, that's the top of my band. So you're telling me the average is 39. I'm nowhere near it. Well, I work in it. And what have we got to do? Why do you think uh, you were carved out? Again, that's a really interesting. I mean, it's it's personally. I mean, I, I I was trying to work out was there a plan or were they just that stupid that they didn't realise the repercussions of coming, you know, of carving us out. So, you know, I'm sure there's brain. Well, I don't know actually. I mean, are there? You know, what advice were they given? Yeah, we're going to pay nine hundred thousand public sector workers. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a recognition payment for what they did during COVID. But we're not going to pay the NHS staff that, um, even though what they've done. They haven't had a pay deal. They'll be happy with that. I mean, I think we thought was it because they want to undermine the NHS so much that it's easier to privatise. Um, we thought, is it just uh, they hate the NHS? Is it just that they're absolutely as thick as two short planks? They don't recognise the implications in terms of our morale and what we've done. Um, 
we, we, that's we, it, we just could, it, we couldn't work out why you would award 900,000 public sector workers a pay rise um, and then carve us out. We could have understood if they'd given no one a pay rise and said, look, you know, we furloughed a lot of people, we spent a lot of money, let's get through this year and then we'll take it from there. But I think it was that, here you go, you know, I, I mean, I know that, you know, we not, we, I won't get into knocking other people that, that, that were public sector workers. But, you know, when you, I've already said, when you did what we did, when you saw what we saw, and when the expectation was on us and almost us alone to to pull this out, you know, to pull this out of the um, out of the bag, it was just an insult. I think the only word we 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 could use was it was an absolute insult. It was a, a joke. It was um, a kick in the teeth. All of those things. But what is consistent is anger we are so so angry at the way we've we've been treated over this 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 lack of a pay offer sorry are you getting the feeling that um the general public are with you on that as well is there is it overarching everybody is completely in agreement or are you seeing people that are going don't quite understand why they're asking for a pay rise they've already got one well that's that's an interesting question so there are I mean, I, what I would say is most people we've encountered at, at the health service in, in back in work now are saying, and this is obviously we don't talk about you know our campaigns with the patients at work. That wouldn't be professional. But without doubt, the, the unanimous um, feeling we're getting from our patients is you deserve far more than you're getting. From relatives ringing in, you really deserve um, a pay rise, especially the ones that have seen some of it on the media. Um, and the, the general feeling from opinion polls that I've seen and from general comments, um, you know, from people that work in other sectors is absolutely, we, we deserve a pay rise. We've been underpaid for years. We've had uh, discussions with teachers that, you know, were, some of them were almost embarrassed that they'd been offered a pay rise when when we hadn't. So I think the general support is there. I think there's a big disconnect between the people that run this country at the moment and the people that are actually working in this country. So I do think there is support from the public, yeah. Fascinating. And uh, wondering if you've got any ideas to why why is it not being picked up by the major news channels and main, main media streams so um, that's a really good question and of course that's a, a question we keep getting i keep getting asked at work and people are really really again you know just add anger to anger so i personally i think the bbc have been told and we've actually had this um confirmed to us by people we know that work inside the bbc don't go anywhere near health worker stories at the moment. Just don't go anywhere near them. And of course, we know the BBC is a political, um, you know, political en entity as well as the British broadcaster. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's stacked full of Tories, but I'm sure that there's a bias at certain levels. And it is, you know, a, a, a you know, a public corporation with appoint appointments made politically um, in, in, in the, um, you know, in in the favour of the, the the philosophy of the or the ideology of the government that's running it, um, that's why we had a, one of our protests outside the BBC. But it is pretty galling. I tell you what's really galling about it was during COVID, you you had to fight your way through journalists on the way into work. Um, and can you do blog vlogs for us? Can you take a camera into work and film stuff? Can you make a comment on this? Are you on Panorama? Right? Do you want to make any comments about PPE? Do you know any nurses that want to speak? falling over themselves to talk to us about what was going on COVID. And we tried to use those contacts. Mm. So I was ringing up people and, and sending, saying, look, you know, we're having this protest about pay, nothing, absolutely nothing. It was almost like, what's going on here? They're just not interested in us now. And it wasn't as if it was just a couple of hotheads. I mean, the Facebook group that was set up in, uh, in the aftermath of the announcement of the lack of pay rise for NHS workers has it got? I think it got something like seventy-two thousand people on it in forty-eight hours, and it's got about eighty-five thousand nurses on it now, mainly nurses, on it now. It's unprecedented growth of that to use that word. Um, it's a massive growth in 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 in, in membership, and of course we saw. We had our demonstration, our first demonstration, which was wild and angry, on I think it was the twenty-sixth of. August or was it July? They all blur into one now. Um, and and I'll find a leaflet with it on it. But um, nothing, absolutely nothing from the BBC, nothing from any other TV companies at all. Um, some coverage, some great coverage from social media. 
and it was it was where was it? What was going on? I mean, some of the videos we've done reached uh, seventy thousand, eighty thousand people seen them. hundred. I think the one of the videos of the demonstrations we did um, on on Facebook alone got about hundred and fifty thousand views. So we knew there was a, you know an appetite to watch what we were up to. But absolutely nothing outside Parliament, outside 10 Downing Street, you know, with, I uh, just, you know, it was really, it was really disheartening. Mm -hmm. We got Sky News on the last one outside of um, the BBC. And I think there is now an, an increased interest, but it's all about COVID. People want to talk to us about yeah. COVID. Again. We're going to have to, I had an ITV journalist on the phone to me this morning um, for about an hour. And I did say, where were you when we were doing these pay protests? And, well, it wasn't us, it was your unions, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you, come on, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I noticed the socially distanced bit as well. I mean, that, they were actually very responsible protests. Yeah, I mean, the police said to us that they, uh, they, they, you know, obviously there'd been a lot of um, stuff going on. We saw, you know, we saw the, uh, the uh, vax deniers, uh, that thing in Trafalgar Square, but the police said to us that it was the most impressive uh, social distancing they'd seen on any of the demonstrations, um, and we we practiced for it. And, and and what we said to to everyone was, look, you know, the eyes of the media, which actually they weren't, but the eyes of the media will be on us, and therefore the country or or the population of of, of London at least. Let's make sure that they see that we we are absolutely responsive about the, about this virus. So we were really good at that, really proud of that. But now the media were awful, absolutely awful. Press have now picked it up. So there was a lot of stuff in Guardian, in the Independent, the Daily Mirror have been really good. Uh, local press have picked it up in in London, but also the regional TV um, areas. So there's been BBC Wales, BBC Scotland. A lot of the regional areas have actually shown the stuff, but there seems to have been a blackout in London, and I'm sure it's it's political. Mm. One of, one of the things that um, you know, I wondered whether you know, in retrospect, you would actually change something, and that was actually the use of uh, the red ink on the uh, on the overalls, you know, the blood. Uh, is that something you felt? You know, was right. I'd like to actually do get your sort of feel as to why, and and actually on reflection, would you change the, that? Ah, the the controversial blood. We've had discussions about this. So I think the reason that the 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 fake blood came out um, was, I mean, it's it's absolutely a representation of our anger of not being heard, not being listened to, because it wasn't a feature of the first demonstration we had, um, uh, uh, not being listened to. And I think what we've said is what we're really angry about is the fact that 640-plus health workers have died um, of a direct consequence of exposure to COVID. Um, what we're really angry about was the absolute farce of PPE that there was. I mean, you know... I have, I've spoken to people that worked in the community. These are representatives that worked in the community. And I've been told that at the beginning of this, when PPE wasn't available, people were going in to do the care for um, patients, holding their breath, holding their breath. We've seen the pictures of the nurses in bin bags because there was no PPE in A&E departments in, in the country. And actually, there's a famous photograph of a lot of nurses wearing made PPE. All of them have got COVID. All of them had COVID. And we know that the advice that we were given from Public Health England regarding, you know, dentists, um, people that are very close face-to-face. -face. So we know a lot of um, ophthalmologists have died of COVID. Um, ENT surgeons have died of COVID. Dentists have died of COVID. You know, people that work in A&E departments and they're exposed to COVID because of the absolute disgrace of the downgrading of the disease and the government's lack of um, um, PPE. That was the real scandal for us. So that blood represents, you know, the, the real deaths of people, not the pantomime deaths that we put on, um, out, outside Parliament, and and I think that's why we, you know, when you're when you're so angry, and you can't seem to be getting your message across, I think what you see is angry representation. Uh, I mean, I, will we do that again? I think that's probably something that we we has has had its course. Um, but would I change that? No. I mean, and you know what? It wasn't. It was amongst nursing staff. We we absolutely aware um, of 
the impact of something like that. And that's why we did it, because we thought, look, look, you're not listening to us. You're not listening to what we're telling you. 640 of us are dead. Um, and, you know, we're still not worthy of a, a piece on BBC when we're saying, you know, this is this is this is a scandal. Look at this. We're covered in fake blood, but that represents the blood of 640 of our colleagues that died. But if that message is still not getting through, so we're not seeing it in mainstream media for the most part, the government haven't reversed the decision or haven't included the NHS in that decision for a pay rise, what's what's left to do? What next? Um, we're going to go on strike. So I think that's all we've got left to us now. I mean, uh, we thought at first that, you know, it would get massive publicity. People would see that, you know, and, and would say this is outrageous. Why have you carved the NHS out? But it's been sat on. So what was said to me by a critical care nurse from UCH at, outside the BBC on, on, on Saturday when we had our last demonstration was, that's it, no more demos. And we know that Unite have now gone for 15%. The GMB are going for 15%. The RCN, bless them, uh, have, have gone for 12.5%, which for the RCN to be moved to going for a big figure like that. And obviously, we're leaning on Unison now, which is a big union inside health. So we know that we pushed the agenda in, in, in terms of the unions um, to, to where they're talking about giving us next year's pay rise now. You know, there's been some discussion about that. But what we're clear on is we want 15%. If you want a health service fit for purpose, you have to pay it. You have to pay the staff in it. Do you think that will turn the public off, though? Because, I mean, you mentioned that the unions are looking for 15% there. I think on average, the pay increase that was offered or has been given to the others in July was 3% on average. Some of them went up to 3.1, some down at 2.5 threatening to strike for 15 percent is that going to turn people off though well i i think we've got to be really really clear to people this is and, and i've said this on on, on some of the uh, some of the speeches i've made on the demonstrations this isn't just about money in our pocket which is obviously important for us it's about actually being able to run a health service fit for purpose because we can't currently. And when I spoke about the nurse vacancies, we got 42,000 nurse vacancies. We got about 150,000 general vacancies across the NHS. So the NHS is facing um, a, you know, the pandemic is a real threat to the population in this country. But the ability of the NHS to rise to, to that threat or deal with normal working is threatened by the fact that we are such a low-paid industry um, that we are fraying at the edges already. Well, not even at the edges. You know, some of our core services are under severe pressure now because of lack of frontline staff to do these jobs. And I think that people have been supportive of us, recognise that we don't get paid a huge amount. You've already said that the, uh, you know, the. Um, the average pay in London is 39,000. Well, the top of my band is nowhere near that. If you're looking at junior staff nurses, and that's the bulk of our nurses, because old gits like me have mainly retired and left early because we, we don't want to do it anymore. They're on 20, 23, 24 when they start, which is just unlivable on in the capital. I think that you know people have to ask themselves, do they deserve a pay rise? I think everyone says, yes, um, uh, NHS staff do deserve a pay rise. And do we want a, a pay rise that enables us to, to preserve the function of the NHS? And that's where 15% comes in, because I've lost 20% of my salary over the last 10 years. This A 15% um, demand comes some way close to actually um, rectifying the, the losses I've made. So it doesn't even give me a real terms pay rise. It just gives me back the salary in real terms that I've lost over the years. So I think uh, hopefully people will recognise that it's not just about us being greedy or wanting you know, big salaries, but it's also about being able to run the NHS properly. We can't keep running it on this level of vacancies. And, and we got sorely exposed during COVID. Um, we could only do COVID or the NHS. We couldn't do both. Um, and that's going to be even more so of an issue if, if there is a big second wave, because what will happen to those normal services again? I was about to ask you about that, actually, you know, in terms of the second wave. It is inexorably rising at the moment. And, um, you know, do you feel that the NHS is better equipped uh, than it was pre, you know, pre the first wave? In some respects, yeah, because we've done it once. 
we know what we're dealing with now in terms of the of the virus itself. We've learned things clinically, and we've learned things managerially, and we've learned things um, organisationally. So, would Tommy's who did a good job, I hasten to add, Tommy's did a really good job in dealing with the virus. Would we be better at it? Uh, on the face of it, yeah, because we've now got, we've built that capacity into our hospital, that flex, if you like, so that we can now um, open up ITU beds much more rapidly. We know what it means now to to transfer staff from normal running to working in the intensive care unit. And we've got people that, if you like, are in reserve that want to do that or would, would be prepared to do that. Um, so in respects, there is that PPE now. We know what PPE we're going to be wearing in, in the areas. And we, as a nursing cohort, uh, we're not prepared to have that downgraded. And we've already done, we've watched our PPE being downgraded by Public Health England over the last few months. And we've just said, no, we're going to wear what we feel safe with. And actually, we won that argument now. Um, but it's the, it's the impact on the rest of the service that's going to be really interesting because uh, unless, and we sincerely hope that this is not seeing the level of emissions into hospital and ITU that we saw before, because the only way we could deal with that was switching off the NHS and just dealing with COVID. And if we have to go back to that, the consequences on the population in general, even those without COVID, is is really frightening. And also, the the morale is is much lower than before COVID because we've done it. And we've had the insult, if you like. And also, you know, we've come through it and we've just been told, get back to normal working now. Um, so, you know, there is the, I mean, the NHS is effectively the staff that work in the NHS. If it wasn't for the staff, the buildings wouldn't look after people themselves. So I don't know what state we're in um, as, 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 uh, as, as a group of staff. I mean, I, uh, you know, I've told you, I've seen senior members of staff um, crying already about the prospect of going into this a second time and lots of people saying they're really frightened they're really frightened they're really frightened um and there's just this feeling of not again you know please not again we don't want to do this again so this tired resignation but a lot of people also saying i'm not doing it again i'm not doing it again you know i'm, I'm gonna you know i'm, I'm not gonna come in this time. so you know for our for our audience and for the people who will be listening to this podcast i mean what are some of the sort of key messages that you would actually, you know, as a nurse cohort as a whole, actually want to try and get across to, to people that we're listening to? If we're going to reopen workplaces, you've got to make sure they're COVID secure in this current environment. So social distancing, we, we know helps, masks help, you know, uh, maybe limiting the amount of people in restaurants and pubs helps. But what will really help will be a world-class test, trace and track system, which we don't have. In terms of workplaces, if they're going back, they've got to be COVID secure, not just schools, but all COVID work, all workplaces have got to be COVID secure as, as, as much as they can. But the way you break this chain of transmission is by testing it, is by testing it and tracking and tracing. And all I've seen is an absolute joke from the government at the moment. It's not NHS test and trace. People think it's the NHS, maybe.